0: The Disciplined Investor is underwritten by Interactive Brokers. Interactive Brokers charges USD margin loan rates from 0.75% to 1.59%. Rates, of course, subject to change. Learn more at ibkr.com slash compare. The Disciplined Investor is all about you, your money, and the markets. Sit back and get ready for this edition of The Disciplined Investor Podcast. This episode of The Disciplined Investor is sponsored by Horowitz & Company. If you're looking for a portfolio manager, look no further. Horowitz & Company, from seed through harvest, cultivating financial success. Good news and bad news. Earnings season provides insights. COVID worries dominate the tape and the Fed digs in and stays put. Thinking about complacency levels. All this and much more on episode number 725 of the Disciplined Investor Podcast. warm, I mean, warm summer. Welcome to August 2021. Here we are. The year is moving quick, fast, forward, and markets continue to provide just all sorts of excitement, don't they? (laughs) Hey, I'm Andrew Horowitz, and uh, I'm the president of Horowitz & Company, and we're an investment advisory firm doing this for many years. So what you're listening to is not an academic thesis on possibilities that utilize just theoretical... No. This is in the trench information. What I talk about each and every week with my guests, and what we talk about here on the show—the comments they make, and the ideas that I bring forth, the questions that I answer—are all about what's happening in real time, and how we operate as an investment advisor on that. So it's it's real, right? IRL here is going on in the podcast. I'm also the host of uh, this the, the DHM Plugged podcast. Myself and John C. Dvorak get together each and every week, and we talk about mm, digging into the lighter side of the financial news. Well, I want to thank you for joining me this week and every week, and it was a busy week for earnings. It was, I think, a total of uh, upwards of about 40% of the S&P 500 reported this week. And we learned a great deal. I don't think there's any question about the fact that companies are doing extraordinarily well. Not every single company, but really on the whole. When you look at the the broad swath of companies that did in fact report this week, it was pretty good. And we're seeing that companies are able to, right now as we sit and we look going backward of what has happened over the last couple of quarters, blow past (laughs) revenue and earnings, right? The expectations that they had that were put on by the analysts. And what actually came out, woof, big differential. Top and bottom line beats everywhere. And some of these were way ahead. Way ahead of not only what was anticipated maybe by any guidance that was put out, but also from the aspect of where analysts had laid down the top end of where they thought things were. So in other words, it wasn't just a simple beat. I mean, there were some serious blowouts going on. And, you know, you have to think about that. You know, are we entering into a point right now, if you start considering what we've seen and all the things that went into this, right, all the catalysts that were involved in, in creating this situation where we've had a reopening, you know, shutdown, closing to opening the doors to massive stimulus to panic buying of goods to low interest rates and monetary policy around the world being incredibly dovish, accommodative. And and you do have to just take a moment. You have to think about this. I mean, are we now entering peak earnings? Are we in a situation currently where companies are at the tail end of that breakneck growth that we saw. You know, the 30, the 40, the 50% earnings growth on a year-over-year basis is kind of hot, especially for not... I mean, we're not talking about startups here. We're not talking about IPOs, right? We're talking about companies that are mature. And these companies are showing significant increases. Now, yes, you're going to say, hey, Andrew, listen, but look at where we were a year ago. I got that. I understand that. But even so, a year ago, from where we are now, many of these companies are topping their numbers pre-pandemic, pre-lockdowns, pre-shutdowns from March of 2020. So what we're looking at right now is not only substantial growth from the reopening, from the shutdown to the reopening, we're looking at earnings that are a lot better and revenues that in many cases are a lot better. And clearly things have changed. There's no question about that. So all these things that coalesced and came together, which is coalesce essentially, <laughs> to provide this incredible uptrend and thrust for earnings that we've seen, you have to question, are we seeing an end to the level of growth, the percent growth change? And I think probably yes, of course. We're not necessarily the end of the cycle of the potential for seeing continuation in in earnings uh, expansion. But there's a lot of things that probably could throw a monkey wrench into the fact that, well, our margins are going to expand as they have. We know that prices and input costs are going up substantially. So the question that we have to first look at here is, are we seeing earnings growth into the valuations that were at nosebleed territory, right? Those, There's like, wait, wait, we're trading at 25, 27, 28, 35, you know, 35 PE. And what is the earnings and how is that going to get there? And did, in fact, valuations come down because we did, did see earnings meet? And that was pretty incredible. Very similar to what we saw back in 2009, 2010, not to the same degree, but with the concept that, you know, earnings will grow into the, 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 uh, the ratios. And this time, different than 2008, 2000, 2009, 2010, that range where we saw earnings really pick up substantially from the financial crisis, which was a lot longer, a lot more had to be done in terms of fixing the banks and repairing. This was much quicker and heaps of stimulus, much, much more stimulus this time around. so if we if we kind of hold that thought for a second, the idea that we're seeing that earnings are picking up and are starting to really come in to a point that met the extraordinary valuations thereby we see that PE ratios, both trailing and possibly forward are going to start coming down a little bit back to maybe I don't want to say normalize, but you know back to the higher end of the historical range of price earnings ratios. Again, that's only one component. But I got to tell you, a lot of the folks out there that you're seeing on uh, the pundits, the pundits, they talk about P.E. ratios a lot. Now, if you've been listening to the show for a while, you know my thoughts on that. If you haven't, let me just give you a quick snippet. P.E. ratios are a good point to focus on if you're looking at one company at a time. However, if you start comparing P.E. ratios just as a single data point and you compare a company that, let's say, makes, um, you know, paper towels to a company that uh, is a biotech company or a technology company or a transportation firm. Now, you start comparing all those and you're like, hey, well, that P.E. looks pretty good. This company, the transportation company, has only got an eight, where the technology company has got a 42 Well, it looks like the transportation company, in terms of P.E., price-earnings ratio, is cheaper. No, meaningless. You want to add one other component, maybe, to try to normalize this number, which is growth. What is the trajectory and the expectation of their forward growth? And we add that into the mix. Now you get something called a P.E.G., price, earnings, and growth peg ratio. That kind of normalizes if you want to start thinking about where we are in terms of comparatives. Is a company trading above one, above two, below one? And you can start to see then maybe those companies that have lower valuations, lower than a one, let's say, on a peg ratio could be considered a better quote-unquote value for the money. Whereas something that has a four is way out of bounds. And you could have a PE ratio that's very low, but a PEG ratio really high, and that tells you that the company is still overvalued potentially. Again, just one more data point helps to normalize the overall. Now, is that the only thing you want to look at? No. A lot of other things. You want to look at historical revenue growth. You want to look at historical margins. And you want to look at things like ROE. And you want to look at, a variety of other indications from a fundamental standpoint. All that as a side note to what I'm getting at here. And that is the fact that we are now seeing that there has been an incredible recovery. Companies have done an extraordinary job of managing themselves through this crisis. And investors have obviously become much more confident with all of what's going on. Very, very shallow dips in the markets. And we are, I think, trained pretty well over the last 20 years to believe that the Fed and other central banks around the world and governments will be there to support markets at all times. I mean, just if you need a a, a bit of a knock on the head to remember this, we don't have to go very far back. As a matter of fact, we can go just to this week. And look at what happened with China and China's markets. So a major regulatory crackdown and other confidentiality issues raised on many names in the tech space. Issues with data privacy and even a move against the financial firms recently with Ant Financial. Alibaba, concerns over Didi. A look into the for-profit educational firms and all this came down hard and very concentrated on the stocks, and it really blew out into the rest of the market, both in Hong Kong and China stocks. We saw that the K-Web, which is a ETF that tracks the technology companies in, in, uh, in China, is down about 50 eh, percent from its high in February. And we see that companies like Aditi, which recently IPO down about 50%, give or take, from their IPO. And you're seeing Alibaba gets smoked and slammed and Bindwadwa and uh, just you know, go down the list of Chinese-related ETF slash companies, even the Hong Kong index through FXI. So, what you have here is uh, all of these companies and indices really getting hurt. And what's the response? This is the reminder. This is the knock on the head here. The response in an official media piece. In other words, there are newspapers that are official. Once they use the word official, that means that they are either read, written, scrubbed, or uh, reviewed for their information that they are providing to the public. Said another way. It is the official mouthpiece of the Chinese government or a compartment of the government. So in this official news piece, there were several articles planted around, and I say planted seriously, and saying that investors shouldn't worry. It's in fact a good time to invest that the ongoing problems and issues that we're seeing are going to be met with continued support for markets. In other words, China and what they're doing on companies is very specific and not to worry about the markets because there'll be plenty of support for stocks. Well, that's kind of confusing, isn't it? You know, from our side of the pond, what we're looking at is, wait a second, China is really stretching their communist might here and this free markets is totally hoo-ha. They don't have free markets What they have is a centrally planned system of financial markets that is a quasi-free market that is a quasi-managed capitalistic market that is really controlled by the Communist Party. And we can't deny any of that. I mean, that is pretty much what it is. However... If you think about that, it's, again, one more example of how a government will come to the rescue of stocks. And what, you know, and what happened? As soon as articles came out, there was a majorly quick reaction to hold the line. Once these revelations of, hey, not to worry, we're here, we will continue to invest in our stocks. And this isn't the first time. It's not the first country. It's not the first central bank. It's not the first government. We see this all over the world, no better than in Japan, as the Japanese central bank is actively, to this day, in buying up positions in the open market of indices and real estate, etc. One of the largest holder of ETFs in Japan is the Bank of Japan. That tells the story right there. The fact of the matter is that you know, central bankers also have portfolios. And the belief is that the, the wealth effect, the fact that you can manage, I use that word a lot, manage. I want you to think about that, what that means. They manage, just like it is managed here with our interest rates, with our very well-crafted and managed open policy of communications that we see each and every week with another Fed or three or five officials marching out. And, okay, now the reason I'm telling you this is because the realization is that they are there. We're seeing this official news in China crafting their articles for consumption. They write the news, they bend the narrative, whatever they want. So when we have to look at this and think about what's the takeaway from all this, this is uh, the extreme and clear commentary, both sides, right? It's, it's, I guess, well, invest regardless of what is happening in the markets. Don't be scared. That is kind of the message that is being sent that regardless of the circumstance, there'll be money pushed into the markets, there'll be support, there'll be a safety net, there'll be a hand, the invisible hand under all of this for everyone. So we have to ask, I mean, I mean, I, I think the question that's probably on a lot of your minds right now is wait a second. Are markets in China and Japan and Europe are they actually free markets? Ah, think about that. Are markets free markets? Now, on one hand, let's just stop the press for a second here. If the markets are rigged, a lot of people are like, hey, the markets are rigged, man. I'm not going to invest in that. Wait a second. Wait a second. Hold. If the markets are rigged, if, if the markets are rigged to only go up or to only benefit stocks in a certain sector, or if it's all about, you know, if you take in consideration the low interest rates and monetary policy and buybacks by companies and, refinancing of balance sheets and utilizing tax code to their benefit. And we put that all together and can you know, you can continually name more things beyond that. Why wouldn't you invest in it? Right. I mean, kind of like, uh, I've said this before, if you know that on the roulette wheel, it's going to come up black somehow for the next 35 times. And you're like, well, I'm not doing that. Somebody's rigging it. I'm not playing in that game. People put your money on black. I mean, honestly, let we could be skeptics, which I am. You know that always. But if you think that, I don't necessarily think that. Let's get some clarity here. I do not think that markets are necessarily rigged. I think they are. They're helped. <laughs> they're definitely helped. But rigged? Eh. Now, is there manipulation in some areas? Has there been clearly manipulation found in the currency markets, the commodity markets, certain stocks? Yes. When there's money on the line, there's manipulation that will happen. Hopefully the regulators and the laws overseeing things will figure that out. Maybe that is what China is trying to do. Maybe they're trying to clean up the act because a lot of Chinese companies are not required to have audits. We talked about that with Frank Curzio a little bit. The fact is that you don't necessarily have to have audits. And maybe what they're drew, doing is trying to clean up so that they can have a much more uh, open market that has a lot more respect to it. Maybe not. Maybe they're just trying to clamp down and squeeze out the money from these companies. That's also a possibility. But, but a market's really free. So I think yes and no. In some places, they are more than others. Japan, not so much. China, well, again, it's managed. The U.S., uh, yeah, a bit better. So then we have to ask, what's the impact on investor sentiment and all this? And there's a a point that I'm getting to here, and I want you to listen, because we're going to get to this point um, as I'm going through this. This all is tying together. Because now we have a situation where we started with the conversation about, hey, where were we? Did we get to peak earnings? How are earnings going with buybacks and all that and the Fed? And now I'm talking about managed markets. I'm talking about the the invisible hand. And now I'm going to talk about investor sentiment and how people look at markets. More importantly, here's the point. I'm wondering. I am actually starting to really consider and and – Looking around at what I see, whether it's through the cryptocurrency space, whether it is through the SPAC markets, whether it is the uh, underlying bid that we see in the markets right now, are all the things that we have seen recently creating a level of, of complacency like what we've never seen before? Maybe, maybe back to where we were in 2000 to a degree when it comes to markets where we didn't have any earnings to speak of, but really a path to profitability with companies in the technology space, and you could just throw crap against the wall and it would get a billion-dollar valuation. If there is a helping hand that will support markets no matter what's going on, that's the investor sentiment and that's what we've learned from managed markets throughout the world, as well as from what we've seen that central banks would will do. If we're seeing that helping hand, the invisible hand, the safety net, whatever you want to call it. Well, what's the point of doing anything than being in the markets and invested? I'm not advocating that. I'm asking the question. I mean, think how hard government officials have worked to calm markets historically. It's one of the things they do best, it seems. And remember, today, the last 20 years, since retirement plans are based on the value of risk assets, in a way, they need to do this. In a time before many people who are listening right now, if you're younger than 40 Younger than 40, if you're listening right now, I want you to hear something. Before, you can probably think about what was going on in work, in the the employment arena, in the jobs market, how your career worked. We didn't have 401K plans that were the dominant retirement plan. I remember, you know, somebody once said to me, oh, one of the greatest jobs in the world, you go over to uh, civil service. Because the thing is, you work for 20, 25 years, and then you have a retirement plan. You have a guaranteed income for life that is adjusted for inflation along the way. Ah, Interesting. A lot of people did and do is work in that arena. And the same thing of private companies and public companies. You would go to work there. You'd work your 20, 30, 40 years, whatever it is. And there was a guaranteed retirement plan called a defined benefit plan. The old retirement income, what has dragged Ford and GM down for years, their pension liabilities. With a 401k, there are no necessarily pension liabilities. What Ford and GM and other companies that have this, these legacy companies have, is a major drag due to the fact that they have to pay out. And if they're not meeting their numbers inside their pension, well, they're going to have to make that up. And it was much less apparent to anyone who was getting a retirement income or who was on their way to working up toward the date that they would retire and get that retirement income guaranteed for life that was adjusted for cost of living and they could actually get another job and do whatever and invest on the side for themselves as well. There was no way for them really to see how their retirement plan was going. Today, contrast that with you can... Just open up a quick app on your phone or look on your computer and say, hey, look, I got $100, $500, $1 million, $5 million in my 401k plan or my IRA, my Roth IRA. Money that you see the second-by-second second movement of valuation. Looking at that, then projecting out what your retirement income would be because of the hard-earned money that you put in, maybe matched to a degree by your company. Or maybe not. As opposed to 100% funded by the company that you're working for. Quite a contrast. With the retirement plan, you know, hey, I was going to get $2,800 a month for life. Guaranteed. And you didn't think about what the returns had to be. How much do I have in bonds? How much do I have in stocks? No, you didn't have any thought of that. You just knew, hey, I'm getting $2,800 a month. Thank you very much. Off to the beach with a pina colada? And maybe, eh, maybe I'll take a job somewhere else and make another salary on top of this. Plus, I'm going to collect Social Security one day. So it was a much different level of concern, transparency, but it didn't need to be transparent. You didn't care if the retirement program made 8%, lost 5%, or made 50% a year. You just know you're going to get your $2,800 per month. Again, a much different situation than we have today. That put everybody on the playing field of knowledge of what their future is. What we have today is something much different. Now, what we have now is a need for many government officials, whether it's the Fed or pick your poison of what your government official is, to calm markets, to build it up, to pump it. And listen, I have a bullish long-term view on and understand the general workings of the markets. We talked about the mechanics of the markets and all the things that go into it with, with how companies operate and how pensions operate, the requirement of individuals to keep on pumping money into their 401K plans. That always goes into the market on a regular basis, week in and week out, throughout time. We've also seen the fact that, you know, sovereign wealth funds are doing their thing. We, all, we know all about this, Right. I think right now in the interim term, we to start thinking a little bit differently of the next, let's call it, uh, you know, one to five years of kind of what's going on if in fact we've seen the best there is to see. The best, not necessarily going backwards and crashing, but, you know, we've kind of seen the best. Now, what is the next phase of this market? And this idea of complacency is something we really need to talk about. Now, before we get to that, because I'm going to get to kind of my concern about complacency, uh, a couple things. First of all, if you want to ask questions, we're going to have some shows dedicated to listener questions. I put it out on Twitter recently. And if you do want to ask a question to have it answered on the show, go over to thedisciplinedinvestor.com. Click on the Ask Andrew button and send it in. And I'm requesting right now, I'm putting on a request. I would like your questions. Please send in your questions. One rule that I'll give you to throw out there, don't ask me about individual securities. That is an area we really can't cover. But if you want to talk about anything else, have at it. The other one thing I want to talk about is I want to discuss something that pertains to our good friends at Interactive Brokers, and it's the idea of payment for order flow. What is it anyway? I mean, do, you, do you, you've heard this, right? What is payment for order flow? What does that mean? Well, it's the money a market maker pays to your broker to trade with your order at a price he decides or she decides. And your broker will charge you commission and leave you no choice. No commission. So what's going to happen here is let me kind of go through this again. Payment for order flow, you got a market maker, you got a broker trading order. You're not going to be charged a commission. You got no choice what you could do. You just know that somehow it's free. Right? You just know there's a free deal. But at Interactive Brokers, you do have a choice. You could choose to pay no commissions, just like at other brokers. Or you could pay a small commission at IBKR, in Interactive Brokers. Uh, they're going to try to match you with an institutional order at a better price. So you pay the small commission, try to get a better execution, utilize a company with great reputation like Interactive Brokers, Or just go along with the plan of paying for order flow. What I want you to do is learn more about this at ibkr.com slash p-f-o-f. Payment for order flow, p-f-o-f. Ibkr.com slash p-f-o-f. So back to my little rant and discussion on complacency and why I'm worried about the idea of complacency. And one of the things that I've been thinking about is, once again, index, passive investing. An index investor becomes complacent as he's seeing that it's, it's, it, it's so commonplace right now that the index rather than fundamentals have been more important to investors. The actual return of the index rather than the underlying issues that are involved with things like earnings, et cetera. But in fact, while while we retire on the valuations of our portfolios, not fundamentals, it's not like, hey, good news, I'm retiring, I'm gonna go spend my fundamentals. I'm gonna spend that P/E ratio. How much you got for that? I'm gonna uh, give me give you three P/E ratios. That's not how it works, right? That's not that's not at all how this works. But the values and the fundamentals are inexplicably tied together. You need to know this. Now, sometimes in the markets, there's this this dislocation. We've seen that come and go over the years. And it's something that a few months ago was really highlighted when prices were raging higher and companies' earnings were still recovering in the process. And what we saw was, hey, wait a second. Where are we with all this now? there was an incredible amount of money that was pumped in the system, was very difficult to discern exactly how much was going to end up in the hands of companies versus the people it was dedicated to get to and how much was going to be pushed into the markets versus those that needed the money. But nonetheless, there was this dislocation. It takes time to catch up. Now, one of the few things can happen. Either prices are going to catch up, or fundamentals are going to catch up or catch down, depending on how you want to look at it, to meet the actual and appropriate number and where things are. That makes sense, right? But at the same time, there are those times that, and you've seen this, where, where fundamentals start rolling over and eventually there's a meeting of the prices, I'm not suggesting that's where we are right now, but I want you to consider the fact that there are companies out there that have reached their peak and prices will start moving directionally to meet the future fundamentals head on. So again, let's kind of focus on where we are today and question, are we nearing peak earnings? A time that the outlook is just a bit too rosy from where we are and sitting at this general point right now, just staring and maybe hoping without much concern. Again, just kind of saying, ah, eh, you know, let the markets do their thing because nothing will ever happen to them. And we again tag that as a major complacency moment. And I do believe that we are seeing that investor sentiment, generally speaking, when you could see it, you could feel it, you can, it's palpable day in and day out in the markets where you see that companies are not able to really take a leg down for more than a day or two. Or an index can't dip beyond, I don't know, 2 or 3%. Now, yeah, you say, well, what about the small cap index? That dipped 10% recently, and look at the financials. I got that. But the big point, when you see on your screen splashed across the TV every single day is all about S&P 500, NASDAQ, Dow maybe a small caps and maybe Bitcoin. It's kind of what everybody sees all the time and what's reported on all the time. And you you have to look at when you see that the underlying prices of companies within those indices are deteriorating while the markets are still holding up. Or when you see a day that like uh, Amazon on Friday takes a big hit, right? But yet they're trying to really jack up the rest of the index to make it not look as bad as it was. Just kind of switch over. Complacency. Because there's plenty of bad news right now, and let's kind of go through that and really get to the heart of what I'm really focusing on right now. Because I am telling you, I am having a flashback to January, February, more like February, 2020. Yeah. Got to talk about this. I don't care what side of the aisle you're on right now. Put it out. Put it out. Get rid of it. There's plenty of bad news right now about the rise in this Delta variant. And that could really cause a problem to the next couple of earnings seasons. And especially if we're nearing peak earnings. And let me explain. We're not going to get into the discussion About, well, you know, the death rates are down and hospitalizations and Delta variant and this and that and the vaccines. That's not my point. I want to talk about investor sentiment. The idea that we won't get locked down again and that all the issues are simply transitory, okay, maybe. But you know, it's starting to sneak up on us. February 2020, we're not going to get it. It's not going to happen over here. What's the big deal? I think we saw the highest level of new case count in Florida this week. Now, again, we're not going to discuss all the different things that may be theoretical in terms of, well, hospitalizations. and de- All I'm saying is, does that point for the average person out there? Let's think beyond just what you're thinking right now in your head. Does the average person say, you know... I'm seeing this mask mandate here, or at least this recommendation. And they're talking about not going out and uh, social distancing again. And, you know, maybe what I'm going to do is, you know, I'm going to order or I'm going to cook at home. I'm going to order in. I'm not going out. I'm not going to travel. I'm just saying, think about this. The average person, whether you think they're stupid or smart, I don't care. Think about it. Because that is going to be something important. We can't be complacent about our thinking about what the other people out there are thinking and how it's going to impact markets, how it's going to impact earnings. Look, it's possible that we'll just have a future that includes COVID. We'll figure it all out, how to live around it without much downside. Eh, That's actually, okay, deal with it. Like we live with the flu. We live with the car accidents and cancer and heart attacks. Okay, I got that. It's also possible that we can see governments issuing trillions of new dollars in debt that somehow doesn't lead to a slowdown in economic growth because of the debt factors and loads, the debt loads and the, and the required payments we have to make on that. And, it, and it's possible that central banks around the world can keep rates near zero forever without sparking some serious inflation that totally demolishes the buying power of the dollar or another currency. Yeah, that's all possible. Absolutely. Or it's even possible that companies can absorb price increases and maybe even pass them on to consumers to maintain significant, significant um, um, profitability A- and amazing sales growth. Yes, I admit it. I admit it. It's possible. All of it. All of it. Even with the idea that the pandemic and inflation are transitory. All right, I give in. I wave the flag. It is possible we're going to thread all of these needles perfectly. And what do I have to worry about? Uh, come on. It's no big deal. But for all of these items to just simply fade away... Without any negative repercussions, is somewhat Ill, uh, ridiculous, unrealistic. Again, threading a needle perfectly on each and every one of these things, it's possible, but is it probable? And are we being too complacent in thinking that all will just just be fine? And if it doesn't, okay, there'll be a helping hand from the government agencies to fix and bail it all out and fix all this. And that's what I'm thinking about, about complacency. I think it's all a bit too optimistic right now and reason to consider getting off the sofa and spending a little time getting to know your portfolio better. Shake hands with it. Say hello to it. Because this is your future. And understand the risks that are in there and what could be. Because you know what? I think that you thought something back last March. You had an idea. You know what? Never again. And then you're like, ah, what the hell? The just go back up anyway. Don't be complacent. Because in a way, you can actually have both a portfolio that's growth, and some that is, I would say, buffered a bit or at least have some things in there that won't get zipped around and zapped. You know your portfolio better than anyone else, right? You understand what risk you can handle better than anyone else. You also understand what you're willing to do to meet your future retirement, your future uh, goals of financial requirements, whatever those are, better than anyone else. Yet a lot of times, just let things go. Hopefully it's going to come back. It always comes back. I'm not going to worry about it. We got the government. Again, complacency. Listen, the last 20 years or so, that's been the thing. Bond yields have been coming down. Stock prices have been going up. Any kind of momentary zig has been zagged back right into place. I've been around long enough. I studied enough. I've seen enough to know that that's not always the case. So let's not be complacent. All right, um I guess I want to I want to close with uh, the same general line here about but taking a moment about setting up a thought process on what could shape markets into the end of the year. For example, if we were thinking couple of different thoughts that both revolve around the pandemic okay so so if we talk about what we what we what i was yapping about a second ago with regard to the complacency discussion in your portfolio what to do well, okay well then let's go next stage let's get into the thinking process of all right, what can i do what 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 should i what what should i be even thinking about right now so a couple of things so let's just Take a moment and say, all right, listen, there's uh, this pandemic thing that's going on again. this Delta variant that's rising and all things that are involved in that. What if the pandemic continues to be a problem? With or without lockdowns, with or without mask mandates, what areas of the markets can do well? What if we don't have any lockdowns or further scares? It just stops. What do we do then? I don't believe there's going to be large-scale lockdowns here in the United States. I mean, the, outside the U.S., is a different story. Australia's in a lockdown, I think, through the end of August. We're seeing other countries kind of talk about, I think there's some mandates like uh, vaccine mandate cards and things going on in France that people are freaking out about. But let's go through this exercise together, okay? If we see this COVID pandemic continue to get worse is one of the things we talked about. Again, this is one idea of how to go through this. Um, as it as we're seeing right now, we're seeing that the COVID pandemic is getting worse, but we could see the tech sector continue to outperform. I mean, we could think about those stay-at-home stocks, right? Although I'm not necessarily convinced that we'll see the same ramp like we did when all this was new and fresh and a new idea, first time ever concept. You know, more probable is that some of the, I would say, over, oversold sectors of the past month will do much better. We're talking about like, I mean, to a lesser degree energy, but financials, for example, some of the staples. We just continue to see the reopening. Eventually, we're going to have a reopening. I mean, eventually, this thing is going to get obliterated, right? Eventually, we're not going to have to deal with this, I think. I think. Right? I don't know what it's going to be. John C. Dvorak on one of our shows recently talked about how if you track out the 1918 pandemic, you could see the cycles. And if you kind of speculate out and push out the calculation of when that ended, we're talking about sometime in mid, early, uh, mid uh, 2022. So another six months or so of this going on. But, you know, what about the stay at home stocks and all these different companies? I think, they're interesting to look at now, and I think they will get a bid dependent on what happens. But more probable, again, like I, I think is the case, is we're going to see the slow and sure reopening go on. Here in the United States, remember, big world out there. Travel stocks, not so much. Entertainment, restaurants, questionable. But some of the other areas that don't require congregating, okay, mass congregating are probably going to do well. And now, even though interest rates are up a little bit and home sales are down a little bit, I mean, when I say a little bit, a little bit. And some of the cost factors of buying a home are down ever so slightly on the side of new home sales for the developers and builders. We saw that come in a little bit. But We're going to be seeing the unemployment rate come out this week, and the probability is we're going to see somewhere in the same range that we've been seeing, but we're going to have to watch and be careful. We saw the last couple of weeks, uh, last few weeks of the initial claims on Thursdays come out a little bit worse than expected. And how is that going to play into the actual numbers when we see on this coming Friday with the unemployment rate? So all these things, again, are intertwined, and I do wonder if we are at peak everything, peak confidence, peak complacency, peak earnings. If we have a hiccup, is it going to turn into a belch and a major disaster? So yeah, I think this is going to be continuing inflation. Yeah, I think that the potential for banks to do a lot better, assuming we don't have an all-out recession, Is going to be there? Some of the selling press that we saw could be abated. Interest-sensitive, inflation protection areas. I think that's what needs to be looked at in this environment. So this exercise that we go through, this kind of just a thought process, right? A a free-thinking exercise, just going through the what-ifs. Kind of you could do this on your own and think through it. And then kind of when you get your answer to the questions solidify it by asking someone who you respect what you think and what they think about what your thoughts were. So what they think about your thoughts. Try to figure out if there's any sense in it. And do yourself a favor. Don't just think from your side of the argument. Open yourself up to the opportunity to look out. That's what makes a good investor looking outside just what your theories are. You don't like something that may not mean anything. Listen, I don't like Starbucks coffee. That doesn't mean necessarily you don't invest in it, right? Or I love XYZ. Does that mean it's a good stock? Maybe, maybe not. But it's really not you or me. But it's more of an us. Got to look at how other people view things and where the masses are going and what they're doing. The idea that you don't like crocs? So what? Have you seen that stock lately? On fire. You think that this restaurant is awful, terrible service, lousy food, but the restaurant chain does really well? Hey, that's great. So consider all aspects when you're thinking about where you want to be and what you want to do. And I'll throw this out there because I need to do so, because I need to go through this. What we talked about today was a lot of more in-depth discussion of the investing process. To become a disciplined, disciplined investor, sometimes it's not for everybody. Not everybody can do all this. Postulate, theorize, come up with, situations, scenarios, understand the backdrop of all the inner workings, and I'm going to be very, very, very straight with you. You need to find yourself an advisor, someone who understands this, someone who can help you through the process or take it over entirely. And depending on if you want interaction or you want someone else to handle it, is what the advisor that you choose will do with you. But seriously, I'm not kidding. It's a really good time to start thinking about all these notions that I mentioned and the incredible level of complacency. And if you have a situation where you've been sitting back and saying, well, I don't care, things are just good. Well, that's complacency. Hello. And start thinking about where the next number of years takes us. If we just went from hell to heaven in the matter of a year, I don't necessarily think there's a hell or a heaven in terms of investing, that is uh <laughs> um you know right around the corner but i do think there's a bit of a different environment that is stepping up that will be slowly changing slowly turning that doesn't mean it has to be bad i'm just saying that things are not going to be what they were today we need to be aware of that so don't be complacent don't be lazy don't be fooled Get off the sofa. Do something about whether it's inflation, changing dynamics in the markets, getting to know your portfolio a little bit better, or even, dare I say, getting yourself back to where you should be from a portfolio standpoint because maybe you went too far one way or too far the other way. That's what I got for this week. Next week, we have a great guest. Uh, we have the president and the founder of Charts. I believe that's next week or the week after. Um, and your questions, like I said, go to thedisciplineinvestor.com, click on Ask Andrew, and ask any questions that you want. I will answer them on the show. Please, uh, like I said, if we there's something that's more personal, I'll answer them directly in an email, but we'll get to all of them. I want to thank all of you for joining me again. Welcome to August, the last full month of the, well, not the last month. It's, it's kind of going to heat up. Of the summer, I always looked at July and August as the summer being a New Yorker. That was kind of the thing. July and August was the summer. Uh, But that has changed a little bit. Goes into September these days, it looks like. Anyway, have a great beginning of August. I will see you again next week. Thanks so much for joining me. Nothing discussed in this podcast should be considered a recommendation to buy or sell any security. Past performance is no indication of future results. In addition. The information presented is not intended to be used as a sole basis of any investment decisions, nor should be construed as advice designed to meet the individual needs of any particular investor. Nothing herein constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice or individually tailored investment advice. Remember, investing involves substantial risk. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results, and a loss of original capital may occur. No one receiving or accessing this information Should make any investment decision without first consulting his or her own personal financial advisor and conducting his or her own research and due diligence, including carefully reviewing any applicable prospectuses, press releases, reports, and other public filings of the issuer of any securities being considered. Please consider this for educational purposes only. As always, use your best judgment when investing. Horowitz and Company Inc. is registered as an investment advisor with the state of Florida and conducts business in other states where it is properly registered or is excluded from registration requirements. Registration does not imply any level of skill or training. Advertisements are not related to the host or affiliates and are not considered recommendations by the host of the show or any affiliates of Horowitz & Company.